0: uh are we recording right now yeah okay oh hi welcome to the city love podcast uh my name is patrick and it is march 10th 2020 today finds uh the city of portland where we are headquartered and a lot of the country going through a question mark of what's going to happen with the coronavirus uh i personally am affected by this at this point um some of the ways i make money is i I'm a temporary catering server, uh, which I pride myself on being very good at. And those jobs are gone for the next two weeks. Um, so we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, what we're doing right now is we're going to, uh, I met with a friend and, uh, really, really, um, interesting person. That's very smart and well-accomplished, uh, clamber. And I know she doesn't really want to give me too much, too much information about her, but she's an urbanist at heart. You'll hear that in the, in the, um, podcast today now uh, what I wanted to do with this podcast was to continue my uh, philosophical uh, how to view the cities and how to be an urbanist um, from my point of view and I just happens that I clamber was at the studio this day we we recorded this a few days ago and I was like hey let's talk about this and I showed her a video that an advocate did in Portland about the rip or the residential infill project which is a uh, A policy that's been happening in portland it's been in the works for years about four years i kind of got really disgusted by the city hall process and how disenfranchising it is for low-income people especially to get involved um but just everybody for the most part it's just where there's basically four people that run the city uh they aren't district related so none of them have any sort of responsibility towards any part of the city they're all just sort of making decisions for the city as a big group um, and a big, small group, right? So there are four people of, that are going to make all the rules for everybody to live by. The residential infill project is a blanket, uh, rezoning of the entire East side of Portland. So if you have ever seen any images of Portland, uh, in the show Portlandia or anything like that, it's the East side for the most part, the East side is the older neighborhoods. Um, sort of the Brooklyn of Portland, because the West side is basically downtown and then a mountain range and then over the mountain range and on the mountain range is suburban development so strip malls houses on one acre lots two acre lots townhouse developments your typical american urban scape so the things the areas that really make portland unique and a place worth visiting are on the east side and the east side really is uh, gorgeous it's a a series of these beautiful neighborhoods with all of the wonderful gardens and trees that the Northwest has to offer, as well as these very unique homes. Like every block has homes that are different. It's not a cookie cutter city at all, really the older part of it. So that uh, part of the city, that sort of pre-World War Two streetcar era is about 80 square miles, and this is the main area that they're rezoning. So basically um, my thing is they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater for short-term economics that they're... Um, sane will fix all the problems. And I think uh, life isn't that simple. And urbanism is the study of the nuance uh, and the ecosystems of human habitats. So I caught Amber on this day when she had just seen a video that I sent to her that I said, this is really a great video that um, shows what the residential infill project is all about for real and the context of it within the economic system of the United States. So she was in the studio when I was going to do this episode. I was going to do the episode on my own, but I was like, Hey, since you're here. So really it was, I really let her, and we had some trouble communicating a little bit, but for the most part, she dove into that topic and she knew way more about it than I thought. And I thought it was a very interesting, passionate plea for some sensibility in tech and in, uh, how we design the future because, uh, we're really designing, well, we're not designing the future. We're sort of, cannibalizing the city at this point um what else can i say about that i want to prep people for the conversation we use local uh names for places and i'll I'll give some of those right now um who what do we talk about we talked we talked about mississippi so mississippi is a a neighborhood of portland that was traditionally african-american now it is hyper gentrified it is a street that has some old buildings on it Lots of old houses that have been torn down to build four-story, five-story, six-story apartment buildings. Uh, It's sort of uh, one of those places that was overdeveloped first. Uh, We talk about, she mentions what other kind of areas? The east side. So the east side, I mentioned that it's the large large flat part of Portland where most of the historic city neighborhoods are and most of the uh, diversity is in terms of economic diversity and ethnic diversity. Uh, What else do we talk about? Okay, we talk about Powell's. That's the famous bookstore that's in Portland, who has has a location on the east side on Hawthorne Street. Hawthorne Street is another beautiful downtown street in East Portland. She talks about Red Light District, which is a um, a secondhand shop that you could buy old clothes at. It's kind of trendy. She talks about Lake Oswego. So Lake Oswego is sort of our local rich people city uh it's that's the stereotype it's a large city it has about eighty thousand people in it it's it's a very large suburb it has some very very exclusive parts of it and uh in terms of local psychology it's the place where all the people that make the decisions for everybody else live the west hills is another location like that these are the this is the mountain range behind the the downtown on the west side this is where a lot of mansions are a lot of there's historic neighborhoods up there too these are not going to be redeveloped these are not part of the residential info project the entire west side of the city for the most part except for areas close to downtown is kind of what i would call ultra suburban it's it's very forested it's very hidden wealth kind of place you know gates driveways uh strip malls things like that what else do we mention here the pearl so the pearl district is a a brand new downtown high-rise district That's right next to downtown. It used to be a warehouse district. uh, And that is where a lot of uh, wealthy people and low-income people live as well. And where a lot of this uh, new development started and where the idea that, oh, we're going to make the whole city like this, it's just going to be all brand new buildings that are four to eight stories high. We mentioned the UGB, the urban growth boundary. So Portland is unique in that every 10 years the city governments have to assess how much land they think is going to be needed to expand the city. And with all the growth that's happening in the past few years, this whole system that most people are totally unaware of, uh, is sort of under a lot of pressure. Um, because the last time it was, and the people vote, the people of Portland and the metropolitan area voted that they wanted to keep the urban growth boundary, uh, in place so that it didn't expand outwards, uh, as much as, as they kind of, Offered. They offered different scenarios. So then, you know, the policy as well, if they don't want to go outwards, then we have to go upwards. Okay. So then about four years ago, the uh, residential infill project came to light. And uh, Clamber uh, talks about the different marketing strategies of these political terms. You know, if you live in the United States, pretty much that's all we get is these double speak terms. So the residential infill project is, is really not about infill, it's about urban renewal, it's about uh, you know, tearing everything down and rebuilding it. Um, The benefits, the negatives, you know, not very, have not been studied. They've been studied a bit uh, that they will displace uh, people that are renting single family homes. I am one of these people. I live in a non-trendy neighborhood and it's it's an affordable house that we rent because there's five of us. And in a house, you can fit a lot of people in a house, you know, so you can make it cheaper. These are the invisible affordable houses that, the policy and the city uh, government makers are just completely ignoring you know because there's other any any there's lots of interest but anyway we'll get into that with uh, clamber and i don't want to say too much about it but except for the other terms okay other terms that we used in this conversation that you might not know about tom mccall so he was a governor he's republican governor in the 1970s in portland that really thought we don't want to lose all the great assets that oregon has and so he instituted a lot of protection and preservation rules, one of them being the urban growth boundary. Uh, another one was uh, kind of going towards saving public lands and having a city and that really looks beyond short-term growth and short-term profits to do long-term profits. He has some really great quotes, and one day we'll have a whole thing on him, I hope. Uh, what else do we have? Okay, I think that's pretty much it. I do mention an HBO TV show that was filmed in Portland called Here and Now. And I don't remember the name of it in the conversation, but that was the name of it here. Now it had Holly Hunter in it and um, it was located all over Portland. And you'll find out why I talk about that. Another one is we talk about ecosystems. Okay. So the ecosystems of a city. And I think when you hear conversations about policy and architecture and economics i really like that clamber brings it back to ecology and ecosystems and this is the way we should really be looking at human habitat and how to build it properly so that we have great ecosystems that function on every level possible now the urbanist uh term for that is quality of life we could just say that so because quality of life encompasses all these different nuances When we talk about these policies and when people come up with these policies for their own personal gain or their own agenda, they definitely pitch uh, quality of life out the window and they just focus on one or two different things that sound good. So that's what the conversation uh, leads into. And uh, I think I'm over talking now. So anyway, without further ado, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, Hopefully we will be healthy and happy and nothing horrible will happen to us. And without... Well, actually, with further ado, I'm still talking. I'm still wasting your time. But, you know, I right now I figure you're on, uh, uh, boy, a long road trip. Hope that's going good. Or you're stuck in traffic in one of these horrible cities that made bad policy decisions like Los Angeles or out, outside of Chicago or something like that. Or you're a dishwasher and you just want to be an urbanist and you're doing dishes and they let you listen to headphones when you're doing your dishes. And I'm happy to join you for your dishwashing shift. And now, Clamber and I have a conversation. All right, today the The topic, uh, the theme of today, theme, is the brick and the balloon. So what I mean by that is I think that last time we talked about how the human brain is like an artist and an engineer, and a healthy brain is a harmonious, balanced brain. And when we create uh, cities and environments for humans, they need to have that balance between engineer and artist. Uh, We're living in an age right now where I feel... The tips or the scales have been tipped a bit, and we're living too much in the engineer's world, and it's it's not healthy. Uh, There's very good reasons why we do live in the engineered world, and uh, we talked about that. But today, what I want to talk about is how the engineering world actually really really needs the artist world, and that I can see in how tech economies seem to work is that they need to be near creative centers. So. If you look at Silicon Valley, uh, San Francisco is like the creative center or was, um, and then Silicon Valley was like the engineer capital. So those, that relationship there was really, really dynamic and I could see it in other cities as well. So hence why I'm a uh, preservation advocate for preserving the things that creative people like, because it's not just the artists that create, you know, sock puppets, it's like the creativity and the authentic city feeds the innovation that tech needs. So today with me is Clamber. Hi Clamber. Hello. You just heard my little thesis and uh, I have other little writings that I have in my computer that's open that I will will we'll dive into but what do you think of that thesis and um, thesis as if I'm smart. Um, <laughs> I am taking a Yale open online course. I'm a, mookie, a Mooker, Massive online open course. Open, yeah. I'm taking a MOOC at Yale, so I, I didn't. I thought I was more of a Harvard guy, but I'm a Yale guy apparently. Uh, and the one I'm taking is called the Science of Well Being, which has really informed how I feel about this topic today. Or theme. So, what do you think about that as a tech person? All right, I'm
1: going to be honest with you. Yeah. As an artist, my perspective on tech is that it has been divorced from art and culture in a way that it is running off in its own solar system. Right. And because of that, it is repeating itself. The last generation of tech that we saw, which was the big dot-com boom, had raves and people making their own clothes and people taking stupid drugs and partying. The artists were hanging out with the tech people in San Francisco. This generation of tech, it's cool to sell out It's awesome to be accelerationist. It's wonderful to be a libertarian. But there aren't any real anthropologists and artists and counterculture hanging out with any of the technology people. Artists have decided to hell with technology. There's nothing real in it to begin with. There's no actual materials. And because the lack of materiality, we don't want to participate in it. How can we make lasting work here? How can people understand the physicality of something if they can't even touch it? And the tech people are saying art, just like flowers, dies and is useless. It's inherently um, frivolous. We should have efficiency. If I spend two minutes looking at art, then I won't do this other thing over here on the side. It's, you know, tech has become this button-pushing, techno-social womb state, where you push a button and you do what your mom would have done for you before. There's an an infantilism that's going on in which tech companies employ people and keep them in a college-like or high school-like state in which they stay on campus the maximum amount of time. There are people at Google who are taking lots and lots of amphetamines to stay up 20 hour days for a tenure that will last about four years so that they can contribute to the bottom line. This accelerationist idea is now infecting... What do you
0: mean, explain accelerationist? Sure,
1: sure. Accelerationism... I would say the the last big burst of accelerationism was in the Age of Speed, leading up to the Great Depression. Everything in New York went from these beautiful, frilly, carved stone frescoes to smooth art deco frescoes. Everything was smooth to be the age of speed. Everything was faster. And so we saw that in the buildings. We saw skyscrapers. We saw these early things. Post-World War II, we started to see the age of glass and steel as a way to show how old these old buildings were and how new everything had become. It became this amazing thing. Originally, the first skyscraper was meant to look like a crystal going up from the city on a main street in in Germany, to show that German had come out of World War Two. And the whole thing was invented to begin with by a gardener who did the Queen, the who did the Queen's Crystal Palace. These things are really hard to heat, they're really hard to cool, they burn birds, they they sometimes if they're concave, they hit cars. But sometimes we get these ideas in our head, and without any interrogation into whether they're a good idea or not. People just say, yeah, let's do them. We we see this in tech. We see this in art. We see this in media. We have this idea of this looks like progress. We're going to make it. This looks like a good idea, which brings us to the residential infill project. Yeah. The whole point of the residential infill project is that it has been sold as being a good idea because housing, more housing always equals good, right? Affordable housing must be good, right? Or supply
0: and demand works for real estate in hot real estate markets, which it doesn't, you know, because you have an endless supply of investors that will buy it before someone that's lower income can.
1: So if we look at the actual strategy behind this project, it's a way of increasing the value of the land, allowing people to buy and tear down houses and place maximum infill into them. So it's just another way of getting wealth from people.
0: But infill isn't even a good explanation for it because infill would mean between what's there, but what's actually happening is a complete demolition, complete destruction of the existing city. And it's more like urban renewal. It's like, it's gonna be a different place altogether.
1: So if we go back to the real issue at hand is that there's something that's being sold, a set of words, residential infill project yeah and there's positive associations attached to each of these words Mm -hmm. attached with things like african-american equality which we know this project does not promote inherently we have issues of affordability which in the abstract seems like a good idea so we have these you know, if if you do a speech and debate presentation, you have a value and a value criterion. You have like a value which everybody can agree on is good, like let's say life or something like that. But then when I don't you know add everybody would agree on that. Pretty
0: much. <laughs> a lot of people would agree that life is horrible. It's a curse. Life is a Human life. Yeah. Right. Like human life like that. It's so to be respected. this
1: is this is the difficult thing, because whenever I try to talk to people about like metacognitive things like this, like, yeah. hey, look at the words people use in politics. Right. They've been engineered to make you feel a certain way so that you vote on something. Right. Did you want to like the residential infill project when you first heard about it? Yes. Did yeah. everybody want to? Yes. Are many people in favor of it? Yes. Because the words have been embedded with unalienable value. Yeah. And this has been used to prop this thing up while behind the scenes... For years. For years. Well, it's being used to create a very ugly version of Portland that, and um, that will change how income and wealth is distributed.
0: I just want to tell a little anecdote and that I just was thinking of is, um, you know, when you walk down a historic Portland street or even, you know, post-World War II uh, ranch houses... There's a charm to the streets, but then also there's a friendliness, there's an open doorness, there's a front-porch-ness, there's a front-garden-ness. When you see a beautiful garden, you look at that and you think, wow, somebody spent their time to do a beautiful garden. These new buildings are fortresses. You walk past them and everything's locked. You need a code to get in the door. It continues the cycle of thinking that we can't trust each other, that everybody's out to get you. And when you go into your little tiny micro-apartment and you watch your television or computer, it's these messages of uh, shock that get your attention. So it's so destructive on many levels because it's, 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 gonna, it's a dystopian version of, of what's going on and, and you recognize that.
1: Well, we're going from human scale where you have the ability to paint your house a certain color, you have a certain amount of land. You have the idea that you buy in or you rent and you have rent control and mm-hmm. that a simple house is affordable because it's just a house to the suburbanization of the city center in which everybody's stacked in the equivalent of what it feels like to be in the suburbs. Yes,
0: yeah, I, 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 vertical suburbia is what I call vertical it.
1: Vertical suburbia. So what does it mean? I, I lived in a low rent apartment in the Pearl back when it was cheaper, uh, across the street from the postal service. It was very loud. It was not a great place to live. Mm-hmm. But I remember not knowing anybody in the entire apartment building. Even when the fire alarm went off, that's when you might meet some people, right? Talk about it, laugh about it. Everyone was so serious. That whole district was made not as a, let's live in the Pearl District and make it attractive, but as a calculate as an investment company, Mm -hmm. as a real estate investment trust, as a family fund, what is the most amount of money you can get out with the least amount of investment per square foot according to what the city allows you to do everything about this is looking at opportunity for wealth because interest rates are incredibly low and people need to put their money somewhere that makes them more of a return than interest rates can in a bank. And especially with inflation, real estate's going to be even a better asset. And people have already bought up all of these assets during the recession. So it's a really, Mm -hmm. really strategic thing that's going on from the upper middle class, from the upper class, from even the middle class.
0: I mean, it's just the sort of Wall Street. It's like that's what's happening on Wall Street. It's that real estate is now a commodity, whereas before, you know, we've all experienced how this city has become, it's gone from a regional city to a global city. And so the real estate isn't regional anymore. It's global.
1: Somewhat. Right? I w- I would say, I would hesitate to call it Wall Street because in calling it Wall Street you say that it's done and concentrated in a land of wealth. This is being done by the person living in Lake Oswego to a random group of East Side apartments that they own. This is done within the city, at the lower upper class level, the local elites, it's being done at the regional elites, it's being done as the armchair investor elites, and it's being done at the national level, as well as China and all of these other wealthy trusts who are no longer getting the returns that they can in the stock uh, in the wealthy trusts that are no longer getting returns in banks because of low interest rates and they have to seek out new ways to make those returns. And
0: it's also unions, you know, like the unions have uh, fund, you know, or the pensions and governments, you know, they're all investing in this stuff too, right? I mean, so it's they everybody. Have to, They have to. So, yeah, it's like
1: when th- when market forces change like this large shifts happen so and and each time there is an issue like the recession there is a greater opportunity for people to buy up poor people's stuff so for Mm -hmm. instance if you had a family fund of four million dollars and it and two million of it was in stocks and you had some in cash and you experienced the great recession as a family you would know, based on your time-tested investment strategy that had gone back multiple generations in your family, that when things go down, you don't sell. You don't panic. So while everybody else was liquidating their 401Ks, panicking that they actually lost something, the wealthy people put more in, they bought up real estate, and they waited it out, making an enormous amount of gains and creating a larger wealth disparity than ever before. Because they've done this. They can invest, they are mostly immune to a market force changing and they always see the dip as an opportunity. And it was a huge dip. Yeah. So the people that weren't able to do that, the people that sold their 401Ks or they were laid off and they didn't anticipate this change and had nothing saved up because they couldn't, they were shoved even further down. So yeah. I got to watch my dad go through that. Mm-hmm. And yet I was hanging out with other people who had money and they said, yeah, we don't have to worry. I mean, I even dated somebody from the upper class like a couple years out of college. And, and I, I just I couldn't really wrap my head around it at that time. So what's happened in the city of Portland is really straightforward. There's an opportunity to make a lot of money in real estate. And in doing so, all you need to have is a change in zoning, Yeah. the residential infill zone is fantastic for that because it allows any of these houses to be torn down and to be built into, under the umbrella of affordable housing, is actually residential infill that are duplexes and threeplexes and fourplexes that sell from between 800K and 1.5 million. That's mm-hmm. not affordable.
0: No, I heard a city councilor, uh, he's not a city councilor anymore, but he's, there was people talking about this, because this has been going on for years, uh, A very small amount of people show up to these meetings because they're at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Like, who could show up for these things? And then there's a giant list. Like, there's, you know, a list of people you never get to talk. I've signed up for those lists a few times, and then I was like, this is pointless. But what happened was this guy, he said, hey, you know, wouldn't you rather... He was advocating for the residential info project uh, on, like, full steam ahead with no regard to any of the repercussions of what this will do. Um, And he said, well, what would you rather have them tear down old houses and build a mansion on that house? You know, that's going to be a million and a half dollars, or they tear down a house and they build three houses and they're each a million or they're each $750,000. Like that's more affordable than a million and a half. And I thought this math makes no sense. Like then don't use the word affordable. Don't use the word that this is creating any affordability because $750,000, if you could afford that, then you could afford a million and a half. Like this is not affordable. So I'm going to stop you right there. You know?
1: Because what you're doing is doing buying into r- this argument.
0: Buying into the argument of supply and demand?
1: No, that people shouldn't be using affordability. When in reality, people are using the word affordability. Yeah, they're
0: using the word.
1: They're using the word affordability because it has power, politically, to push through their arguments. So that argument that they gave you, would you rather have somebody tear down something and put a million dollar property or three $750,000 properties?
0: I mean, that's a, it's a stupid... Th- Thing I think that was a dumb argument to say it. It's an
1: incredibly smart argument because it's a distraction and it's a piece of rhetoric that basically says everything's going to get torn down. Not true. And would you rather this or that? You're right. forced into the choice. Right,
0: binary. Yeah, it's a very right. binary choice. It seems like everything nowadays It's that. It's like, well, if you don't do this, then you're that. And it's like that is not how this stuff rolls because urbanism – is the exciting thing about urbanism is the nuance, right? That's why you find it exciting to study this stuff, right? Like all of the variations in it.
1: I've been doing a project where I take a camera out the window of a car, put it on a bunch of intersections, and I film the city. I take a big wide-angle lens because when I was a kid, you'd know, you see these videos of somebody that had taken in San Francisco in 1905, 1906, these intrepid film crews with their new video camera equipment. You see them in 1940 you see them in 1960 I saw a few from Portland and I thought hey I'm gonna be the next generation to go and take those videos and people will think in 10 years 20 years wow look at all these old buildings look at how this neighborhood felt look at all these weird cars look at all these people as a historical object but also let's say all this stuff gets torn down let's say let's say that Portland because it didn't have all the crazy highways proposed by Robert Moses and that Tom McCall ran out this highway maker along with Jane Jacobs, that we had a chance of having a unique original city that was preserved from the ravages of the suburban big box store of the 1990s. And let's say that because of the the residential infill project that it might all go to waste, let's say that. How are people going to remember what it was like how are people going to remember what it was like to live at human scale in the united states when everything is a townhome and everything is copy-paste architecture what does it feel like to walk out of your house and a thing that you painted and tend to your own garden well you don't have one the thing that's going to come in is there's going to be a rise in mini trailer parks and little tiny house programs and there's going to be maybe something like that but really the issue is Let's say this all happens and in two generations, we've got two real estate cycles that have torn everything down and put the residential infill in. Mm -hmm. Does this place just look like Tacoma, Washington or Salem, Oregon? Is it a pass through city suddenly? What do people do to live here? Because the other thing that's going on is, it's hard to make a living in Portland, Oregon. Because we didn't have all the big box stores come through, we didn't have all the extra space, we didn't become a Seattle, there's not a lot of investment here. Is it gonna become the next LA? No, maybe. Next San Francisco? Probably not. We're, we're having remote tech offices for San Francisco people. The management's still in San Francisco. Do we have innovation in apparel? Absolutely, but it's out in the burbs. Do we have innovation in music? Kinda, as long as you're indie, and really this is just the place that you create yourself before you go to LA. And if you haven't really created yourself, you go to Oakland and then you go to LA. So it's a feeder city. It's still pretty cheap to live here, than other places, and I think partially because there aren't a lot of jobs. You come in and you make your own job, you bring your own agency, or you have to have a trust fund to live here. So does it become like a Bend, Oregon? Does it become, you know, Astoria? You know, I think there's going to be some point in time where people say, hmm, we tore down all these things, and in these 20 years period of time. We have to remember that these are built as investment properties by armchair realtors and real estate investment tr- uh, and real estate investment trusts.
0: I think for a small city like this to take away its 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 treasures and to sell them, I don't think it'll ever be maybe a dystopian. I think it'll be dystopian in how it feels, but I think people will live here. Like let's say climate change really affects California a lot, people will still kill, still move here. I think what will happen is one of the reasons why they say they have to do the residential infill project is so that they don't have to expand the urban growth boundary, which is the suburban areas of Portland, you know, the subdivisions, your typical strip malls. But I think what will happen is the, the effect of this will be the reverse. Like what will happen is nobody's going to really like the city of Portland anymore. So they're going to want to expand and live outside of it. So places that are now small country towns will become massive uh, suburban areas, so places like Newburgh and places like Estacada and things like that. I think that's what happened the to desire, Denver, Colorado. Yeah, because the desire to live in Portland won't be there. It'll be like, why would I want to live in a town where it's all eight-story apartment buildings that are falling apart? Because that's what it's going to be. So
1: this is the issue. If you're doing this as an investment property, you're going to build it with the cheapest materials you can mm-hmm. because you want to sell it off. You want to say, how many bedrooms, how many baths can I make? How many semblances of luxury can I slap on there as a surface decoration
0: like? Granite countertops. Bingo. Yeah. And uh, Oh, this is another one. Bike room. Bike as if room. A bike room wa- is a luxury. Bike, bike room. You know, dog wash room. No dog parking room. because biking. Those empty exercise rooms that no one uses, but they're on the first floor where there should be something that gives back to the neighborhood and there's nothing. Hot tub on the roof.
1: And the they best didn't one. They don't even have that. Yeah. Well. Grill, grill that you can yeah, that you can that rent. You could, yeah, uh, some of them have a coffee shop in the bottom part, yeah, which some is of nice. Them have, yeah, but the issue is that it becomes almost student dorm living.
0: Yeah, it's not. Uh, it, you can't create community in in rental housing like. How that.
1: about a walk up apartment? You know. How about walk up courtyard apartments with community gardens in the middle, and acoustically isolated so that you can actually make sound.
0: So get this. So that's whenever they talk about the residential for project you see marketing for it. They don't do marketing anymore because they've won. Like they it's going to pass probably. So they don't have to do any marketing anymore, but the marketing was always those kinds of apartments, those courtyard apartments that are super charming. But I've thought to myself, that's not what would get built because the land is worth way too much money and if you allow 6-story buildings They're not going to create two-story courtyard apartments. Like, that's what they keep saying. Like, oh, if you let them tear the houses down, they're going to build these beautiful courtyard apartments. I'm like, no, they will be six-story buildings, like, or three-story, or or it'll be micro-townhouses to the max on every lot.
1: Micro-townhouses with the exact minimum setback of the driveway. That's why we get those skinny houses, because the setback for the driveway for the the beautification project is... You have to have it what is it 12 feet from the sidewalk to have a driveway so you end up stacking the house on top of the garage yeah and making the the most narrow garage and really an area where moisture is going to pull that could lead into messing with the foundation of the house so these the issue is that these are made with a minimal material so that they can be sold and yeah that's the number one
0: big problem of them
1: look at the city not as this beautiful thing, but to investors, it's just an equation.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the engineer thing, right? And, it's and all a lot of these
1: people, they live up in the hills. So they think of the east side as, hey, great, let's make money. What is there left to make? Well, the Airbnb thing got shot down, and now you can only rent out two bedrooms, one bath. So how do we make more money? Because there was the whole ADU thing and that kind of went out the window, right? Well,
0: that that didn't work. It, it It's working. Don't get me wrong. You see ADUs all over the place and they're great. The problem is, is that the financing part of it, it never got innovated. It's like old school 1950s real estate tools for 21st century. Like a lot of it had to do with how the property got assessed by the county was mismatched yeah. and i thought they were working on that but i think at this point once this thing goes through all the properties have a brand new value as empty lots so that's right it doesn't and even like a beautiful victorian house people think oh nobody'll ever tear that down it's like if you could build a four story building of course you would tear it down
1: well it's ex- the thing is once you buy the lot let's say you buy the land for with a tear down 350k then you got to be sp- cheap that's cheap but there's still properties on the market with teardown of that yeah 350 with a tear down takes you 100k to demolish that's without a loan you're looking at $450,000 to start plus with all the permits at least 90k yeah. to even build demo a small demo permits house. are exp-
0: this is the thing too the the city's making lots of money off of this project too i mean they get not only the demolition permit the building permit but then they get the new taxable units so if you could take one taxable unit at the single family house and make Three taxable units that are worth $750,000 each, but right? You have I mean, that to. That makes sense. You
1: have to. You really have to, to start selling this new property at 850 k to even recoup the amount of building costs that you turned it on. And you're going to probably end up finishing this thing late and you're going to cut corners because you have to. So, like, sometimes people get into these things and they, like, they get screwed up and they, you know, they bite off more than they can chew and then they just want to get it out of the way. Like, they want to sell it off, yeah. you know? Like I I found houses that are built, they look like the suburbs inside to try to get somebody to buy them, you know? So it's really this, there's two sides to this and they're very separate in how they think about the world. One side is, hey, I need to make money because I need to send my kids to an Ivy League school or they're screwed. And I need to make sure that they have the money and I need to keep up my, you know, everything. And this is just part of my investment strategy. This is what my parents did and this is what my parents did before them. This is what I'm doing. I'm in this real estate investment trust. It works. I'm looking at it as a spreadsheet. I'm seeing where it makes money. I may never visit it, you know, or hey, I'm a really nice architect and I'm gonna restore something like Revolution Hall. Great idea. Yeah. Or you have the people that are like, hey, I'm renting. I have no rent control. I have very little rights. And if you're gonna tear down the building, You have to pay me $3,200. So it's better just to leave some of these buildings vacant.
0: Yeah, that's another thing. There's so many uh, vacant buildings that have been bought by investors that are covered in graffiti because for some reason, I don't know if the graffiti artists are sort of working with the developers because they automatically pounce on these beautiful buildings that are of high quality and have been taken care of really, really well throughout the ages. And they just cover them in graffiti so that it looks gross. So you're like, oh, that's an eyesore. So the next step is to tear it down. Um, but I went to a thing at uh, the city hall once, uh, where they had this guy from Denver, who's like an expert of infill and stuff. And he said, what Portland really has its number one asset is all of these old houses that have been well cared for. Like he said, and you know, if you've been to other American cities, there really isn't a lot of towns where they have a big inventory of these well cared for Victorian era, pre automobile neighborhoods that are completely intact. They, that just doesn't exist and so um then uh you know the the city planner said oh yeah we totally love those and it it was not that's the lie you know I, I you can't say you love old houses and then create a policy that destroys them all I,
1: old houses here though are very expensive to maintain it's like owning a boat there's so right, much yeah, moisture and there's like so much maintenance that goes in these as somebody yeah, who used to own true. an 1890s house, like eek, you know, even that thing was redone. I've, I've known lots of people have restored these things. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. But as the house prices go up and the tax goes up, like I would want there to be a tax subsidy for maintaining a historic home. Yes. And yeah. like, what about any proposition to put new houses on the national register of historic places? You know, is there going to be anything to visit in Portland anymore except for a long line of condos with chains like Laughing Planet? Not to say that. Well, I mean, you bad, know, but.
0: if you look at Seattle, like I don't know a lot. I don't know. I'm not an expert of Seattle, but I've I used to go up there to escape from here. <laughs> and now I don't even go there. I, I think it's kind of not worth. Oh, my God. You don't seeing. go to
1: Ballard like Ballard is like so Ballard architecturally is, no, preserved. That was
0: the saddest place I've ever seen. I went there because I, I had never been to Ballard. Have you been there lately? Did you know if- I won't step in foot to Ballard I won't I right. won't,
1: because for me all this stuff kind of just makes me nauseous.
0: But it doesn't it didn't work. Like what the planners said would work. You don't, which was you don't you-
1: plan a community. You you allow people to yeah. change the community in a way that suits them. Right? There are some big blocks in in Berlin, right? And and they're four stories tall and they have a courtyard in the middle and the kids can play in the courtyard and it's safe and it's great, whatever. But because those in kind of the Barcelona city style blocks, the way in which they're built, it makes it cheap enough for a family to run a business in there. You don't have all these big roads that you have to maintain. You actually, like there's been been all this math done around this. It's like to make a good community, you need to have it be affordable to run a small business and affordable to live.
0: Out of their apartments they run small businesses? No,
1: no, no. It's all mixed use on the bottom floor. Because it's But they're old. new
0: buildings. They're post-World War II buildings. No.
1: Some of them are. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, this, this, I could, so, this was East Berlin, and right. it still had coal-fired places. So
0: sometimes like. it feels to me that the planners that run our city are are wealthy enough to have been to Europe, you know? So it feels like they went to Europe, and they're like, you know, Europe has five-story buildings everywhere. Like, that's how cities should be in America. But the thing is, is, like, you come to a a, a city, and it is what it is. So you have to do an inventory and to look at... What are the treasures of this particular city? Not oh how do we make it more like Berlin? You they're know, it's not like-
1: they're not really interested in that. Like some of them are. And and, and and some people who are just kind of like blindly saying yes to a lot of these things are like, oh yeah, affordable housing, yeah. But this affordable housing argument is bullshit.
0: So explain what you've heard uh from the media and locally about the residential infill project in regards to affordability like what are they how are they selling this to you and the public? we
1: need affordable housing build as much as you can because it'll be affordable and there's gonna be section 8 housing in these things.
0: yeah inclusive zoning is sort of the the carrot that they I know they people in section 8 housing gonna I know people great.
1: who live in these places you know what it is it's a series of endless dark damp windowless basement apartments so that you can get enough of a tax break to justify building the building and all the luxury stuff is on top.
0: And my thing is how do you do inclusive inclusive zoning is when you require the developer to have a certain percentage of affordable Rent units. control. But my whole thing is like rent never makes anybody any wealth. So why aren't we giving I think it'd be better investment to give down payments for lower income people to buy houses. You know, it's like pay for the down payment and then they pay the mortgage. That would be a better investment than, than inclusive zoning because inclusive zoning, at the end of it, you're stuck, you still have nothing. It's still fairly but,
1: complicated. Yeah, so, but, so that's how so they're the, selling the, the it. The issue is with any of these arguments, it's a one-size-fits-all argument. Yeah, exactly. Really, what we're talking about is nurturing an ecosystem, and an ecosystem has many different ways to play in a place. If we were talking about residential infill boundary where everything is the same zone, we will get an endless sea of looking exactly the same in the Southeast Industrial District and everywhere.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the different neighborhoods that each have their own unique take on Portland, mm-hmm. and Selwood, to me, is the most charming of the neighborhoods. That one's been the most brutalized by these bad developments. Um, it looks, it's like a crappier version of what they put on Mississippi, but it's the same
1: but we're trying to get to postmodern modern excuse. We're trying to get to a point, and that's that the people in city council and the people that have money are literally doing this to protect their investments. They're not thinking that it's evil, some of them. They're just thinking, hey, I need to protect my investments. I need to make sure that there are opportunities for investment in Portland.
0: Or how do you, if the argument for it has been, if you do this, if you increase supply, everything will get affordable or more affordable. How do you be a counselor and say no to that? You have to have this good explanation. And I think people don't really understand either the value, the inherent value of these old neighborhoods, but also... Uh, how this there's will no, not. Add there's up to no that.
1: value statement here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, right.
1: so the value statement is affordable housing is good. Residential and full project mean, means affordable housing, right? So that's that's the argument. So what people have been doing, and, and they keep doing this again and again. They say, oh, let's do a one size fits all boundary. Let's mm-hmm. do a one size fits all proposal. Wouldn't it be great if you know. But if you ever use any software like. Esri City Engine, for instance, which allows you to plan out zones, change the urban planning code, and then generate architecture based on that, you will always find that people will build within the maximum limitations. They have to. They have to to make money. And very rarely do you have somebody who's like, ooh, this is great. So what what will happen is, yeah, we'll have this infill. And... These neighborhoods will will lose what what there was there, and what Portland will become is a place for slightly wealthier people to go down to the new luxury hotels that are being built yeah, downtown. That's right. Things will be kept in the Pearl, and that will be considered Portland. People will not be going to the East Side. What are they going to do? Go to the red light district, like clothing store? Are they going to go to Buffalo Exchange? Are they going to go to Powell's East Side? Maybe. You know, maybe there'll be some cool co-working spaces over there. But honestly, it's it's this idea that all of the restaurants are going to be downtown and we're going to recenter everything, da-da-da-da, and then there's Travel Oregon, and then it's going to be come into Portland International Airport, stay near the airport or downtown, go on your little hike to Forest Park, dee dee de, dee dee. You know, it's mm-hmm. great. And spend all of your money, if you can, within the Pearl District. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're building a Ritz Carlton in Portland. I mean, that's just not. Well, yeah, only of like the four culture. people
1: own all of downtown anyway. So, so look, this is unfortunately a really bad ecosystem idea because you never want to say, "Hey, let's just give everyone subsidies or let's do this," and you know, all one size fits all stuff. Yeah, right. It's we need to have totally different zones all over the place to allow people and things to be side by side with each other. I noticed that where my house was isn't in the infill zone, but Ladd's addition is in the infill zone. And that's so funny because Ladd specifically made Ladd's addition as a kind of permanent neighborhood that couldn't be torn down or screwed with. He would well, that's a national
0: screwed. historic uh, or it's a historic neighborhood. But you know, the state just changed the law on... Um, yeah basically in Oregon, and it's unfortunate because Oregon does have an amazing, rich, architectural uh, stock of, of beautiful places, uh, but the state is trying to undermine that and get rid of that okay, uh, so that you could build stuff.
1: Here's the point I want to make. Yeah, You talked about tech and computing before. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would, if they made their little startup or whatever, they would have a physical server, right? They would have a physical program running on a piece of metal in their closet or at a service facility. And people would maintain that themselves. And then the new concept called the cloud showed up where it said, hey, you can let other people like Amazon manage your, your servers for you. You don't even have to touch them. Right. You don't have to have some kid on a pager waking up in the middle of the night running out there and plugging something back in because it got disconnected. Now, because of that word, the cloud, or because of Moore's law, Tons of investment money rolled in for this new cloud-based software and hardware. And what it really was was a marketing statement. So when we talk about affordability and infill, we're using a marketing statement to push something that is something totally different from what it is. And it's very hard to sit people down and say, actually, the repercussions of this are pretty severe, and we will be losing the architectural heritage of our city by allowing this to happen. um Because the minute you say something like that, they say, oh, no, affordable housing is good. Um, uh, Section 8 is great. We are in dire need of housing, which is not true. And there's nowhere for people to live. And this is going to be good for everybody. You know, and and, and this is the thing. Or like, oh, like, let's make sure that minorities and stuff can live in there. It's like, actually, right now, it's really hard for anybody to live in these places if you're not white. You know, so already it's really hard. And now it's like, okay, you can live in these places. You can't rent a house anymore. But here's this special Section 8 housing for you that's dark and damp and awful.
0: For and the time being, there are, what's, what are the parameters on these inclusive zonings of how long did they have to provide affordable housing for one family? And what if it's well, they find it reasons to get rid of you? Because, you know, anyway, one of my projects I'm doing with this is about mile post five. And your friend knows a lot about that. And we'll get him on here. But it's interesting to see how these government programs... How these corporations and things, how they use these things, and how they try to mitigate what they actually have to provide, and all these other deals. So let's go to the you end know. state
1: of this. Let's say this happens everywhere.
0: Yeah, let's look into the future.
1: Let's look into the future. Let's be futurist. Let's right say now. this has already happened.
0: I'm doing my futurist. This is my futurist uh, template. Okay, let's just go. Let's yeah.
1: l- let's assume it's all done. We're living in Portland.
0: I'm not living in Portland at that point.
1: Where are you living?
0: I am going to live in a small town, and I'm going to run for the city council so that we preserve the whole damn thing. And it's going to be – this is the problem. No matter where you go, I think this is going to follow the small towns too. It already has with Dollar General and Walmart. Right, yeah. Because the minute a Dollar
1: General or Walmart comes into town, they say, hey, are you guys behind on your taxes? Do you not have enough money to build that new school? Do you have potholes that haven't been filled? Are you having trouble levying taxes from your – citizens well we'll come in and give you this special big chunk of money just for allowing us in your town and then immediately we'll destroy all mom posh stops and then it'll you know so if you could be on the council of a town and prove economically because really this is an economic argument that long term maintaining these ecosystems is good
0: yes for sure long term i mean we are living here you have the
1: value argument that value argument that you're saying is that this beautiful architecture is an inherent good that people need in their lives, that it's crucial to job security, safety, affordability, but where's the numbers to prove it? And if you can prove that, it becomes a compelling argument that you can say, hey, actually, let's play this over time. Does it increase crime? Does it increase poverty? Does it screw up the the physics of the city to have this zone? I mean, you could find somebody with City Engine, and it will do the computations for you if you need to. I mean, this is this is what what's been done for like the city of Honolulu, trying to prove that a light rail system would be better than allowing suburban infill. And they were able to prove that the city would say, what, 30, 40 million over the next 10 years if they did it. So part of this is if you can show people economically how much more they can make by this way, it becomes really interesting. The question is, if there's no economic argument and people are forced to make an economic argument right now, then there's no there's no real hope unless, you know, it, it, the thing is the lower class really doesn't have a lot right now. No, they I can't they, go to the city council meetings because they're at 2 p.m. Even yeah. if they do, there's a long line and they're often giving impassioned arguments about truthful stuff that's gaslit and looked down upon by city council, mm-hmm. or they're not dressed up properly, You know, I've I've been in these city council meetings, I've testified, I have snickered at somebody who didn't have their arguments straight on both sides, right? And it was dumb of me, but you know, I did speech and debate in college, like, hey, I'm in an, I'm in an advantage, right? Was I able to make some change? Sometimes, yeah. But again, I have a weird job, I can go. For any of these other people, it's like, well, no, you really can't. And when you do, are you going to spend eight hours preparing your speech? When you get cut off after waiting two and a half hours in line for city hall, you know yeah. it's it's the whole system is set up not not to do any of these things. What the weird thing is is that right now in software and in cities and everywhere around the world, people are so interested in flattening everything, compressing everything, beige-ifying everything, turning everything into a repeatable investment thing. And I think what's happened is we've we've taken out value from the physicality and this value has become an abstract and now everything's investable. I think it's really important to bring up stuff that has happened in the past that is similar to this, right? Because history Damn. doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So yeah. let's go back to the classic Jane Jacobs, life and death of a great American cities. We could make a sequel to this called the death and life of great American condos.
0: Let's do it.
1: But the most important thing is to see that Jane Jacobs had a lot of arguments against residential infill. And the canceling of slum neighborhoods, obviously. But if we focus on the residential infill arguments against, we could see that this might not be the best idea. Especially since it is—it's not. Hey, let's try residential infill in a strip of Portland and see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's let's rezone the entire southeast district,
0: uh, the entire east side, which the is entire east
1: side, which is below 82nd, eighty seconds, square miles, I and mean, huge, twelfth street, and 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 see, you know. In the forestry service, you don't just plant all the trees at the same time. (laughs) You plant some trees and you plant more trees and then those older trees provide shade to the saplings and it keeps going. And a healthy forest has lots of different types of trees. And experimental foresters work with an acre or two at a time and plant different configurations and understand what trees work well with each other and work with the ecosystem. And then they apply that to a larger forest the point of doing this makes absolutely no sense that you would completely rezone an entire area this large. I would propose instead of saying, hey, here's this huge project, you know, what a politician would do is they'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll get to that point in 2025, but we'll start with this small section first and see how it goes.
0: Well, in theory, they did do that where they allowed every corner lot to be uh, duplexed. And so what you find is that they They have created a lot of duplexes that are very, very expensive that you know, they basically have no driveway, no, I mean, some of them, I think, don't even have garages. I'm not sure, but they don't have basements for the most part. but uh, that they did try that. So that was sort of their, oh, yeah, we tried it. It works out great. but but the result of it is very expensive housing. That's very modern looking, postmodern. It doesn't fit into the neighborhood at all. There's no design guidelines on. so there. if
1: you go to the city council, I would propose saying, Hey, we need to limit the size and scope of these proposals so that it's not four-story tall fourplexes.
0: So the new residential infill project does do that. It does limit the FAR, so that's sort of the uh, floor area ratio, like how big of a of an invisible area in a three-dimensional space you can put a building. They say that's going to limit the amount of demolitions. I I, don't, I just don't think that. I think the economics are. It's going to make them demolition. uglier,
1: because it's going to be narrow houses and and really repeated architecture. So again, you're just going to still have that tuck under garage to maximize things.
0: I don't see how else you could do it. Yeah, that that. You could do a side driveway so that basically every nobody has a yard at all. It'll just be concrete of concrete driveway on the side, and then the buildings will take up the rest of the. Um, space and up to the sidewalk, so you're talking not even really enough room for a, a street tree to grow properly. So what 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 is amazing about our area is the ecosystem that the ecology that these neighborhoods are set in are these beautiful trees grow really fast. You get these big beautiful trees, beautiful gardens. Those will all be gone for the most part.
1: It's interesting though because you have this kind of easement or the setback for a garage, but you don't have any system set for a tree. And I think, right. I think you know, if, if you talk to politicians, they'll do this thing where they'll be like, yeah, we'll do it, but year one, we do this, year two, we do that, year three, we finally do the full thing, right? For reducing sugar on the labels of, of products, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't use high fructose corn syrup anymore. Well, how about we pass that so that we completely eliminate it by 2024? Oh, you're required us to label that there's high fructose corn syrup on the package, well, we'll do that, but we're gonna use eight-point font for this one. Oh, you say that we have to use a 12-point font? Okay, we'll use that, right? So everything that is not specifically written out is going to be worked around. So if we if we say, hey, you can just build this, but there's no trees, there's no courtyards, there's nothing, we will end up with exactly the shape of the architecture that, that conforms to that. And, and there yeah. aren't a lot, like, Portland does have kind of the sidewalk beauty project and all these things. And there's, you know, a 271 page planning document that I've read because I've built stuff in my backyard and I've gone within it. But it doesn't have enough on, you know, repeated landscapes. It doesn't have enough on like stop using bright yellow on the side you really like, you know, there's there's no like if you go and I and I hate sedona right if you go to sedona or you go mm-hmm. to new mexico you go to to santa fe there's this idea that you need to build within this adobe structure um, because it's good for <laughs> it's good for it you know and, and it, it kind of makes it look homogenous but it's also unique santa fe well it's the
0: pattern language uh, in effect it's like right. uh you want stuff to so if we say look its if you're
1: building something new you know would you try to not make it look so ugly, you know? But the thing is like, that's what new building materials do. We can't afford to build a beautiful craftsman house anymore. Okay, I'm gonna wrap it up. Okay. What did we learn today? We learned that sometimes there are terms like cloud that get away with what's really behind the scenes and become more of a marketing term than what something really means. So affordability, something that politicians can latch onto and used to mess with emotions to get their points done. Uh, Two, that Jane Jacobs was interesting, and there are other ways through these things, and that we can learn from the past that these urban infill projects and renewal projects aren't necessarily the best idea. Three, that uh, wealthy people think differently than poor people, because they have investments and they need to keep returns on investment. And that with low interest rates, it's really important for them to put their investments in
0: real estate investment trusts. And they won't be affected by this because it doesn't include their neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, they're yeah. armchair investors. So, so there's all these things that are going on. We're watching this thing happen to Portland like it's happened to a bunch of other cities. We thought we might have been immune to it because we didn't have all these highways built in the 70s and 80s. But it turns out we might have some of this stuff happen. And things are uncertain, but hopefully, we could technically educate people about why this doesn't make sense to do this or to put more beautification restrictions or to allow trees or to have sidewalk easements or to allow structural easements. Um, and that by doing away with architecture at human scale, like we see on Hawthorne, that makes it really cute you know, family businesses that are affordable. Uh, we do away with a certain feeling in a neighborhood that allows us to call the city home or quaint or something worth visiting. And so by allowing this whole proposition to go through, we will be fundamentally altering the future of the city in a way that may make it look like every other city. But if, if we can, we can try and stop it. But it's really hard to stop it when we don't have rhetoric, and the other party does.
0: Yeah, the, it's been con- the narrative has been controlled about what it means, and mm-hmm. and uh, we're a minority voice on this one. Even though studies have been done, the the city paid for a study to be done, and it said it would displace lots of people. Yeah, especially in Luntz or areas like where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, it will because the lots are bigger. So it's like you tear down a ranch house somebody's owning and or renting, and uh, you could build, you can yeah. make a lot of money.
1: Alright. So, yeah, so that's to the, be continued. The difficult truth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to talk about uh but thank you for being here and thank you for uh yeah. expressing your view on it and I hope that we could do great work together to at yeah. least just get think our of, voice out there.
1: Think of the meta argument whenever you get emotionally involved in what is a rhetorical statement meant to confuse.
0: Yes. I I will do that from now on.
1: <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>
0: okay. Thank you, good people of the world, for listening to the City Love Podcast today. We look forward to you listening to the next episode. Producer, John Thompson and Patrick Hilton. All music by Beluga. And remember, if you don't love your city...